ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Well, hey, and welcome to the first books of the year for 2020. Is it really the first? It is, yeah. This is the first one. Michael Lewis is our last one of uh, it feels 2019. Feels like a long time ago. I feel as though it we does feel let, long. Yeah. We let people down. By well, not... I think we have in a, in a weird way. Well, but, what you have know. you been doing? So, uh... <laughs> what have you been up to? <laughs> what I've been doing, apart from sitting in my pants watching Bargain Hunt. Let me see. Yes. Uh, yes. No, I've just been, you know, doing the thing. What have you been doing? What have you been up to? Well, uh, hang on. You're not going <laughs> to swivel out of it. I tell you what I've been doing. I've been watching the Mighty Reds rolling inexorably towards the first oh, time. Within thirty years, there is nobody I think who's going to deny that. Think that's, so. that that's now you're going gonna to believe us, yeah. And now you've got to believe us, yes. and now you've got to believe <laughs> yeah. us, yes. and now you've got to believe us. Yes. You're going to win the league. I think we're going to win the league. Yeah. But elsewhere, you know, how's the? You know, is there a? You know, there are is. You, are there any horses around? There are, are you, no are horses. You... Sadly, I... the time of me and horses that has come to an end. That's been and gone. That's uh, very much been and gone. And I wish them all well. All my friends in the horse world. Are you? Are you looking for work? You know, in the. I don't know. In the in the beer business. In the beer K- business? K- no, business, wouldn't that be great? The beer business. Are you going to open a pub? Me. Why not open up a pub? But isn't that that's what footballers used to do, didn't it? They're, now they all decide to become pundits or coaches or whatever, uh, or you know, property magnates or appearing on uh, the, those uh, homes under the hammer or whatever. Yes. But in years gone by, that's what a footballer would do. They would open the open a pub. They're local. Well, I've, I've got quite a good commercial idea, and that is, yes. I think we should open our own bookshop. In fact, chain of bookshops are just going to run it past producer Ben. What do you think? Who's going to invest, Who's going to invest in, in our all, bookshop? It's all about Come money for him. On. I think it's an what excellent about, idea. What about the heart of the fact that what we're trying to do is we're trying to open a bookshop. That's a, sh- yeah. a bookshop. That's a shop mm. full of books. Oh, it could be a Richie Curtis film, couldn't it? Uh, he might have done yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, has done he done that? that? But imagine, it would be great. And oh, Was that Notting Hill? And you could be the manager. I could. God, I'd love that. Having some power. Until it obviously got taken away and in there, a coup, and there could be a bar <laughs> and everything. But Ben's waving his hands. Ben's waving his hands, meaning no more Notting Hill chat. All right. Oh, the guest is here. Oh, all right. Fabulous. Oh, well, that's very. Should we just do it as we always do, Gonzo style? They just come in while we're doing the intro. Should we what, and squeeze should, past uh, my yeah, um, okay. hot chocolate? Oh, I'll just drop my bag on. Mm-hmm. Well done. This is slightly chaotic. Excellent prose. Hang on. Bring him in. Well, when you say them, it's only Sophie Hannah. So. Uh, it is. Yes, Sophie. 
Um, meantime, here's some correspondence. Hillary, yes. Hillary Hansel says, Hey, Simon and Matt, this was a bit of a blinder today. The news from Lee Child that he's passing the baton to his wee brother. We need to ply him with coffee and get him back for another chat. This is the shock news this week. Yeah. We just left the door open in a theatrical style. Yeah. Uh, the shock news that uh, Lee Child is going to sort of phase himself out from the uh, Jack Reacher books and he's going to uh, introduce his yeah. brother. He is. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, I want to ask you some questions about this, but first, oh, okay. Sophie's joining us. Hang on. Yeah, well, so Sophie's Sophie, here. I'm Matt. Hey, Hello, Sophie. Don't worry about drinking yet, but you're sitting around Sophie's there. got her uh, drinks yeah, in, so in both hands. She's got a whiskey chaser <laughs> and half a pint of cider. <laughs> might be... It's going to take me a long time, so I'm not the most agile person. Oh, okay. Because that's you your actual Sophie Hannah as our special guest on the podcast today. without spilling anything. Okay. <laughs> we were just discussing, Sophie, the shock news that, um, as listener Hilary Hansel has pointed out, that Lee Child is passing the baton on from himself to his brother to write the uh, the Jack Reacher books, which is, which is certainly a first, I think. And uh, authorly collaborations are not new, but passing it on to your brother, that's quite a good one. What do you think of that? I think it's lovely and shows that the brothers have a really great relationship. And, you know, there's a lot of... Um, there have been a lot of newsworthy brothers having not such a great relationship yes. in recent years. You know, David and Ed Miliband, for example, yes. and now people are worried about Harry and William and whether their relationship's Nicely good. done, that's right. Wow. Um, Topical. And, and I have two kids and I... They're really close, and my worst nightmare is them ever not being close. So my first reaction when I heard the Lee Child news was, isn't it lovely that yes. he, he and his brother are so close that they, you know, he trusts his brother to and be Ste the continuer of reach? Well, Stephen King writes with his son, who's called Joe Hill, and they both write thrillers. Have you? Uh, can you imagine collaborating like that, that intimately? Or, you know, you've got an idea, and then you're thinking, I know, I'm just going to share it with someone. I can imagine it. I have actually collaborated um, on a thriller called The Understudy, which I co-wrote with three other crime writers, Claire McIntosh, B.A. Paris and Holly Brown. And the four of us, invited by a company called Serial Box that specialises in collaborations between writers, they rang me up and said, would I like to be the, the showrunner of a serial? What does that mean? It basically means the sort of lead writer on what I would call a book, but they call it a serial because they release it in episodes. They're aiming to be the Netflix of books. So they get a sort of lead writer who's the showrunner. They then that The lead writer then chooses the other writers they want to work with and they produce episodes, uh, or what I would call chapters. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it <laughs> <So> was... <laughs> I am, I'm very analogue. But I worked on this book with these three other writers, and we came up with all the ideas together, and we worked out who would write what, and it was huge fun. It was a really great experience. I'm not sure whether I could do it for every book, because I do... One of the things I love about writing is the fact that I get to sort of have a vision and then realise it and make all the decisions. I'm a bit of a, a, you know, megalomaniac for some of my book ideas, but I certainly enjoyed collaborating on this particular project. See, I think a lot of authors are, are quite like that in terms of... I mean, you call it megalomania, but actually that that whole idea of constructing characters, constructing a plot, working out... What you don't want to do is to say, what do you think? What do you think? 
because it's all up here. It's mm. all in your head. Yeah, you don't want it to be writing by commission. And, and if you're passionate enough about something to write it from start to finish, generally you want to be the person making the creative decisions. The way in which the understudy was different is that there were four main characters and when I had the initial idea, I thought if I'm doing this with three other writers, each of us can, as it were, represent one of the main characters and then that felt like a sort of organic way to write cool. a book together. Uh, anyway, Sophie hasn't come in to talk about any of this nonsense. It's just that it was <laughs> no. it was just a very interesting development, I thought. Anyway, so Sophie's book is Haven't They Grown? And Matt will now describe the cover. Yes, this is a book that shouts out sinister. Um, so we've got, it's mainly black. And uh, we're looking at night time into a house that uh, has got a um, high-walled garden. And there's a figure in a window looking out. Um, and then we've got Haven't They Grown in, in big, bold, white letters and Sophie Hannah's name in yellow beneath it. But above all of that is 12 years have passed. The children don't look a day older. Why haven't they grown? Ah, OK. So that, that's it's a fantastic front cover because... That's the plot. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's, <laughs> yes. Well, it's not. Obviously, there are developments, but you, when you pick up that book, you know precisely what you're going to be dealing with over the next few pages. And it's, so it's a terrific, it's a terrific idea. Did, did, the, did the premise occur to you first and then you thought, yes. I'm, go I'm not quite sure I'm going to work that one out, but that's a great premise. The premise occurred to me first and I'm, I'm glad you spotted that the shout line on the book's cover is the premise. And I'm literally saying to people as early on as the cover, this is what you are reading to find out. Yes. Why have these children not grown? So, yeah, the premise occurred to me. I was taking my son to a football match and it was about an hour away from where we lived. And I happened to know that a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for many years had a house in that exact area and I thought while my son's playing football I can have a nosy at the new mansion this is exactly my, the plot it's exactly, of the book exactly, exactly the plot yeah so far so autobiographical <laughs> this is spooky so, wow. so I went to have a nosy at the new mansion because I knew it was a mansion I knew my friend had, had bought a very very big house I love houses I'm very nosy so I thought yes we'll go and spy on the house while I was there, absolutely nothing happened. I saw the house. I thought, what a nice house. And then, because I have a weird brain, I thought, wouldn't it be strange uh -huh. if I saw my friend arriving back home and getting out of the car and then her kids get out of the car? And what if they looked exactly as tiny and toddlerish as they were when I last saw them? That would be really weird. But the reason I had that idea is because when you haven't seen people for ages and the last time you saw them they were three and five years old that is how you still imagine them and I've often had the experience of seeing a friend after 10 or 20 years and they've got these great big athletic teenagers with them and I'm like surely you're not little mm. so and so so in my head her kids still did look like that and, and I thought oh wouldn't it be funny if they got out of the car and they were still tiny children and then I thought, oh, wow, that's a brilliant premise for a thriller because what would you actually do if you saw that? Freak out is what you do. Well, you would know that you'd seen something that was actually scientifically impossible and yet you would know that you had seen it. There's no question of Beth being an unreliable narrator. She's very sure that she did see what she thinks she saw and yet she's sensible enough to know that it is impossible that this five and three-year-old should still be five and three 12 years later. So... 
what is the explanation? And she then becomes obsessed with finding out what's going on. And the more she probes, the more convinced she becomes that this family is actually in danger and so that something really bad is going on. Was that like a visit of the muse? You know, where, when you have a thought like that, where something has happened to you in real life and then suddenly the thought occurs to you, I know that would actually work. I just wonder how regularly that happens to you. I, I'm sure the more that you write, the more the muse is there to say, oh, here comes, here comes the story. I don't think it's anything as mystical as a muse. No, I wasn't suggesting it's a mystical thing. But I just think, you know, it's <laughs> no, like a I muscle. It's, a... it's like a muscle that you, you know, and the more you use it, the more it occurs. But, you know, at that moment, I was talking to a songwriter last week. He said, I'm sitting in the kitchen. I've got my guitar. I've got an idea for a song. If something occurs, I write it down there and then. If I go off and make a coffee and call my wife and then come back, it's gone. You know, I just wonder how, how rare it is where suddenly an idea occurs to you and you're thinking, actually, that would be really good. It's not that rare for me, but I think there's a reason for that. I think um, what actually happens is when you're a writer and you start to think of yourself as a writer and it's the main thing you do and it's your job, you are constantly subconsciously instructing your brain to come up with good ideas for books because that is what you do. So at some point, I will have subconsciously thought to myself, my purpose in the world is to come up with really gripping and exciting stories. So, brain, look out for any possibilities that might fall into that category. I know I'm taking my son to a football match, <laughs> but actually what I'm really doing is looking yeah. for a best-selling book. So just before, just before Matt, just introduce us to Beth, OK, who is, who is kind of you here at this point. Just tell us um, about your, your me, you know, the woman that is yeah. taking us through this puzzle. Yeah, well, Beth is... In some ways, a perfectly ordinary, everyday woman. She's married, she's got two teenage children, she's got a full-time job. She's just an ordinary working mum. The thing that makes her not so ordinary is her response to this very, very strange incident. So she sees these kids, they are five and three. She hears her friend calling them by their name. So she hears Flora, her friend who she hasn't seen for over a decade, saying, come on, Thomas, come on, Emily, get out of the car. So she knows that, you know, Thomas and Emily are the names of the children. So it's not as though she can think maybe they're two different children. Um, and at that point, she decides that she is going to find out what's going on, no matter what. And that's where she becomes not ordinary anymore. Because I think most people in that situation, especially when their husband says to them, as Beth's husband says to her, you know, come on now, that does sound so weird that we probably don't want anything to do with whatever's going on. I suggest we mind our own business. We've got kids revising for GCSEs. We can't be, you know, getting involved in this weirdness. And Beth is just like, no, it's not right what's going on in that house, in that family, whatever it is. I have to find out the truth and I have to see if those children are maybe in danger. I think I think you're absolutely right to put the um, the premise on the front on the front of the of the book because it is one of the best premises that I've read for a book for a while. Oh, thank the, you. That, that very idea that you've got that in that opening chapter, something that you think. I, I know you've already said that um, she's not an unreliable narrator, but bluntly, as you're reading it, you're thinking. But this can't possibly mm. be true, yeah. that she's seeing these children who've 
in the in the intervening twelve years haven't grown. The, no. you, know, what, what, you, yeah. you race through in your mind. When I was putting the book down, I was as you always do with a book, and you, um, you know, still still percolating in your head is what is going on. And definitely one of those is well, obviously I can't trust what she's seen because what she's seen is impossible. The question I'd like to ask you is about your process, though. Now, you've, you've already said that the, the way you came up with this idea was, you know, sort of drawn from your own life. But I, it felt to me like almost as if you thought, I'm going to write this opening chapter in which something impossible happens. And now let's see if I can write my way out of it. It was almost like it was like it was a challenge. So th- that's my question. Is, is your process for writing this? There are other authors we've spoken to. Lee Child will just sit down and write. Adele Parks we had on the other week, and she will go to meticulous research before she starts. What was your process in this? Well, I always plan the whole story out from start to finish, but before I even get to the planning stage, I need to know that there is an answer to the question I'm raising at the beginning of the book. So I wouldn't even have started to plan or opened my plan document on my computer if I hadn't found a way of answering the question in a satisfactory way. So because I'm particularly attracted to these impossible-seeming premises, like these really outlandish, what-on-earth-could-be-going-on kind of mysteries, there's always a real danger that there will not be a solution that's satisfying and that isn't a massive anticlimax. So the first step is me having the initial idea of the mystery. Then the next step is waiting until a solution that is plausible and elegant and massively surprising and shocking and satisfying on every level occurs to me. Then once I've got my beginning and my satisfying ending, then I know I can write the book and then I do a thorough plan. And I I literally include in the plan every single element that will be in the book. And it's sort of like a recipe for the eventual book. So then when I come to write the book... It's so much easier because I look, OK, today I'm writing chapter three. What do I need to put in chapter three? These things. And so I follow my plan and there will be times where I think of other things that I want to change or add. And then I always give myself permission to do that. But I'm still really glad to have the plan there. So this is not the Lee Child approach where he just starts and sees sees where it goes. Cause I, I think what uh, this made me think of is I, when I was younger, I used to do magic tricks. right, And mm. I did a... I did a TV show for ITV called Best of Magic. I was replaced after one series. But anyway, really? I, yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed it enormously. But what we've described and what you've described and what the cover is, is a trick. Because it's an illusion. It's like a big David Copperfield illusion. It's saying, look at this. Tana, look at what I've done. And then, which throws the challenge out to the viewer, if it's a trick, or the reader, in your case. You know, which is, okay work this one out then you know and even even though people listening to this who won't have started reading the book yet they'll already be thinking okay well there are only a number of options yeah and that's what i think is so ingenious and clever about the way this book is presented this story is presented without reading a page we just looked at the cover and we're going i'm in you've hooked me in already <laughs> i'm uh, I'm annoyed. I need to work this one out. I need to. Yeah, I'm it's like an itch that you need to yes. scratch. And in fact, quite early on in the book, Beth, who is the one who's seen all this, 
she tells her family what she's seen and her teenage daughter Zana who is a you know a teenager with plenty of attitude she's like well okay exactly as you said there's only a certain number of possibilities let's go through them because we all know that kids do that's right get and that's older. what the reader's been doing yeah, yeah. so and one of the possibilities Zana raises is that her mum's gone a bit bonkers and lost the plot and seen something that didn't exist and Beth says well you know obviously I can't rule that out entirely maybe I have gone mad but I definitely feel as though that is what I saw and then when she goes back to the house with her husband her husband is convinced she hasn't seen this at all and he thinks when they go to the house they'll find that all is fine when they go to the house more strange things follow on very quickly after the first strange thing so then even her husband has to admit that yeah there's something really wrong going on with this household because there is a point where where the husband dom says okay it's time to draw a line <laughs> we have stop yeah. and i think the reader's going he's right he, he, he's i mean i'm glad i know you're not going to because i'm not finished but you know he i can see it from his point yeah. of view i'm so glad you said that because i was just saying to an audience last night i had the first ever event for this book last night readers really divide into those who are totally with beth like of course you've got to pursue this to the bitter end. How can you not? And readers who sympathise with Dominic, the husband, and kind of think, OK, let's just mind our own business and avoid trouble and not poke our noses in any further. And you're clearly in the second yeah, category. But, I mean, there's no novel if you've got the time. <laughs> that's it. And that's, gone. and that's where Beth agreed and that's the end of the <laughs> yes, we, all the end. we all decided yeah. to mind our own business and who knows what the explanation ever was. But But that touches on what I think is the beauty of the book in that... This is like a crime novel where, for a big section of this book, in fact, probably two-thirds of this book, there might not have been a crime. There's no... Right, number one, there's no body, there's no obvious criminal act has been performed that makes you think, oh, right, well, Beth is quite uh, quite legitimate for her to be investigating and spending all this time on this. It would, and this is very much where I'm in sort of Simon and Dom's corner, where I'm saying... Uh, really, in this situation, you haven't... You, I know you think you've seen something, but that can't possibly have happened. And so to be able to write a book where... It is... I mean, it reads like detective fiction, but there's no body and there's no obvious criminal act either. Well, this is where I think I, as a crime writer, have a, a sort of unstated contract with the reader. So I don't think it's spoiling it in any way to say that when we eventually find out what's going on, there certainly is crime involved. And as a crime writer writing for crime addicts like myself, I wouldn't have written this book if it was going to turn out that everything was totally above board. I wouldn't just have written a book about a very nosy woman who finds out that everything's broadly fine, though a bit eccentric. Because, mm. you know, then I wouldn't feel I'd written a satisfying crime novel. But what really kind of interests me and it interests me more and more the more people I talk to who've read the book is I want to ask people like what would you actually do like if it was you or if it was you would you be able even if you thought there may well be no crime involved would you be able to let that go or would you have to go back and find out and ring the doorbell of the house and say can I just meet the children please just to satisfy myself that mm. they're not I mean I, I know that I could not let that go if that happened to me. And so Beth is probably me as I would behave in that situation. Yes, I don't think I would have... I don't know how spoilery we can be, but, you know... Going, not at all spoilery. Not at all. <laughs> but you... That bit where she goes... To the... Hmm. 
<laughs> to the, <laughs> to the <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. And you then, could stop before that. And then those people, when they say that thing, yeah. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> but you could. Are you saying that you could have, at a certain point, been content not to solve the mystery? No, it would have frustrated me. And if I could have Googled everything, or seen it on Google Maps, <laughs> would you have maybe... gone as far as going to the house? Would you have gone and knocked on the door? Yes, but after that, I think. You see, that's as far as I'd have got. See, I'd, have, I'd have got to the door, and if it hadn't been absolutely obvious that something had happened, I think that's where I'd have stepped away. Even if you were 100% sure I know, that you'd I w- seen those I, children... But I would, I would be thinking to myself, I've obviously made a mistake. I've obviously made a mistake, because this is impossible. What I think I've seen is impossible, so I'd have got as far as the, yeah. uh, as far as the front door. I wonder if it's a male-female thing. Maybe. I mean, well, because I do think that, like, I mean, the husband Dominic is slightly based on my husband Dan, who, whenever <laughs> I present him with a weird thing, he always agrees it's very weird, but he takes that as an opportunity to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> Let's Whereas... agree it's weird, and now <laughs> yeah, move on. Now move on. Whereas I'm like, that's weird. We must obviously immerse <laughs> ourselves in it even more to find out. Um, so I do wonder whether. Women would find it harder to leave. Women seeing children who are very much not as they should be because those children should be 17 and 15. I don't know whether a female sensibility might find it harder to just leave that. As you do more events, I'm sure you'll find out, you know, who's in Team Dom. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And whether there is a gender divide. (laughs) Just so so some non-spoilery observations... Lavender has no effect on anybody. It's just a nice smell. I just want to say that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's true. I definitely think it's true. Anyway, have you that's... ever have you ever had a lavender aromatherapy massage? Oh, I'm going to guess here. Uh, I'm going to put all the money that I have in my pocket on the table and say no. What is the answer, Simon? No. Have you ever had... yeah, no. no, the answer is no. Okay. But my granny used to make lavender bags. I love the smell of lavender. I think it's you know fantastic. But I don't believe if I have a lavender bath, I'm any more relaxed than if I haven't had a lavender bath. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Okay. Secondly. Have you ever had a real-life experience with a really patronising policeman? Because it feels as though you have. <laughs> um, do you know, I don't think I have, but when I was researching my first ever crime novel, which was about a woman who insists her baby has been swapped for another baby and nobody believes her, I spoke to about three or four police officers and I said to them, what would you do... If you went to a house where there's a husband and a wife and the wife is insisting the baby in the house is not theirs and the husband is saying, ignore her, of course it's our baby, she's just a bit bonkers. And the responses I got from three of the four really shocked me. One said, oh, I'd just assume the husband was right and I'd just think the wife was being hormonal and was a bit mad. Were the policemen all men? Yeah, they were all men. Um, And a couple of the others said not very ideal things. So I I have had experience of police officers giving me answers that made me think, really, that doesn't seem very thorough or proper policey. But then I I have a police, um, a chief constable, actually, who helps me with research for my books occasionally. And he's amazingly thorough and thinks of every angle. So I think, you know, with police, as with any profession, you get some who are thorough, you get some who are less thorough. But no, I've never had... A very patronising right. policeman he, he, of the kind that's in the book. And yeah. you're dead wrong about lavender. You really are. <laughs> you should, if you go to a top-notch spa yes. and yeah. have a range of... Have a, 
I mean, I think it's... I, I'm quite shocked that you're laughing because if you've never done this... <laughs> no, I just it, know him. No, I, I know, but... Go that, to a top-notch spa. This brilliant. convinces yeah. me that he is in urgent need <laughs> yeah, of discovering all of these things. No, so very much you need that, to go yeah. to a top-notch spa and have a range of aromatherapy massages with different scents, different essential oils, and you will soon see the difference between, say, lavender and eucalyptus. I should point yes. out that Beth, the heroine of Haven't They Grown, yes. is a massage therapist. Yes. And she uses essential oils when she's massaging her clients. So this is actually something I know quite a bit about. Well, I'm very into all this kind okay. of thing. Well, I'm really not. But anyway, where, <laughs> Matt, where, where are you on aromatherapy? I remember, I'm a big fan. Can't get enough. Um, Do you actually think... <laughs> hang on, excuse me, stop. <laughs> is is move on. that really <laughs> true? Do you though? think it's bollocks? <laughs> Do you? Right. Do, Do you? I? Do I? Do, Do you? I? I I don't know is is the answer. There you, you go. Do. That's nice and committal, isn't it? Um, can I ask it? Can I ask another question? Can no, I? It looks. <laughs> no, so he wants to say something. Well, no, it's on. just that, like I'm not saying that. Like obviously, if you if you had just had some really worrying news and then someone put some lavender under your nose, it oh, wouldn't right. remove your like yeah. it doesn't have magic powers, <laughs> but it does. You know, there are smells that kind of wake you up a little bit and smells that relax you a bit if unless your emotional state is mitigating against that obviously your state of mind is the most important thing i'm a bad sleeper if, and i've been given lavender drops for my pillow and i think it's just ah you see so what's going on there yes is that the reason you're a bad sleeper is something to do with the way your mind is working and lavender can't tackle what's mm. going on in your brain it's just that if you were susceptible to feeling relaxed, then the lavender might help. This but if good. you're a bad sleeper in general, then there's a whole range of other stuff we can do to sort that oh, out. Oh, well, we must have another session on that. I, I, <laughs> I didn't think we'd spend quite so much time talking about lavender. But can, can I ask <laughs> something um, that, that struck me reading the book is it felt, it felt a bit like a love letter to intuition because this goes back to why is Beth investigating this at all? It's her intuition that is saying something is not right here, and I'm tr I'm trusting what I've seen with my own eyes, even though you know my husband's telling me I need to give it give it up, and there doesn't appear, as I say, for vast waves of the book that anything has happened. But it felt like intuition. It's it's sort of almost a love letter to that. I re I really like that observation. I'm really pleased you said that because I'm saying it's a better observation than mine about <laughs> lavender. I think it might. I'm trying be. to steer it away think, from lavender. I think there's a strong chance it might be. No, I really love that. What I would say is that's partly true, and she absolutely does have that strong intuition, but it's based on concrete things. So it's not only the children who appear not to have grown; it's also the fact that in that same scene, while the little children are there, Flora, her ex best friend is on the phone to somebody yeah. and Flora seems very upset and just watching and listening to that phone call from across the road hiding in her car, Beth thinks that also makes me think something. You know, this is a weird phone call. It's not, something's not right. And then the third clue is that Georgina, who is Flora's youngest child, who was a baby when Beth last saw her, she's not in the car at all. And although she might easily be somewhere else, it's like, well, where's Georgina? And why are the children so tiny when they should be teenagers? And why is Flora having this very weird conversation? And she just sees that whole scene and thinks, nope, this is not right. Hmm. But when she first starts to investigate and won't let it drop, at that point, she's not convinced anything criminal is happening. It's more just that she's seen something that makes no sense. And she just has to understand how that was possible. 
The one other thing I want to say just before we finish, Sophie, is that it's almost like I think it's all I think it would be referred to as a sidebar. But regardless of this mystery, this crime, which we are spending our time involved with and and trying to solve, the family that you've created, Beth's family, is so fantastic that um, even if even if they had decided to, you know, and Dom had won the day and they I'll just leave it there. I want to spend time with them, you know, because your because your children and the husband and the wife are so completely believable and funny, and loving and argumentative, and um, it was they're, they're terrific. I want to I want to spend more time. Well, with them. you'll be delighted to hear that you can easily do that by coming round to my house, <laughs> because those teenagers are my teenagers. That husband is my husband and I'm basically Beth. So you could come round for dinner, meet us all, and I can show you some of my aromatherapy. Oh, Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) So you can get both for the price of one. Yeah, no, I mean, especially Zanna, the teenage girl, she is exactly my daughter and is reacting to everything in exactly the way that my daughter Have you run this past them? Oh, yeah. Oh, they, they're thrilled. My daughter is... And especially because so many people say Zana's their favourite character. So I keep saying to my daughter, everyone loves you in this book. They think you're the best character and you should have your own series. And she's like, yeah, too right. I am amazing. <laughs> Might we see more of this family? Well, I don't know. Because in my head, it, when I wrote it, it felt very much like a standalone. But so many people have said that they would like to see more of, in particular, Beth and Zanna working together as a sort of mother-daughter combination that I am at least now considering bringing them back uh, because, you know, Zanna's supposed to be revising for her GCSEs, but Beth thinks that it's actually more educational for her to help solve the mystery of the children who haven't grown. And I have to say that is the attitude I would take as well. The, well, we look forward to what comes next. Do you know what comes next? Do you like, already finish your next book? Or? Uh, well, I've got two more books coming out this year. I've got a book about happiness, which is a sort of self-help book. It's called Happiness, A Mystery. And it's actually me trying to solve the mystery of happiness, just as you'd solve any mystery. Like, where, what are the clues? What are the case files so far telling us? Is there a solution to what is happiness and how sh- how do we try to be happy? And I do actually solve that mystery. Oh, that's, that's not good. a spoiler. I'm not telling yeah. you how, but I yeah. do solve it. Uh, and then in August, I've got my fourth Poirot novel coming out, which is called The Killings at Kingfisher Hill. And that is Hercule Poirot uh, solving another fiendishly puzzling murder mystery. Meantime, Sophie Hannah's brand new book is Haven't They Grown? Uh, Sophie, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Still don't like <laughs> Lavender. Right. Let it so, go. So why do you not sleep well? Tell me. <laughs> Tell me. I will let me sort this out. Oh. ACAS powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. 
And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.